This is Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. High Performance. Leadership. People think overwhelm, craziness, craziness. No time. No time. No fun. No fun. Just work, 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 work. It's time to slow down, to speed up. You owe more to yourself. This is Efficiency on Demand with Monique. Monique is a high-performance and leadership specialist. During the show, Monique and her guests will share the harsh truth behind their success stories, what it means to perform on a high level, and to be a leader in this world. It's time to take control of your time and live life limitless. This is Efficiency on Demand, and this is your host, Monique. Welcome back to Efficiency On Demand, everyone. Today, I have a super efficient guest on my show. I'm really happy to welcome him. He's half German, so you gotta know that already when I say super efficient. His name is Nathan Hirsch, and um, he is a, a guy that I'm connected with on Facebook for, I wanna say two years, three maybe already, and as it is in the online world, you're always commenting back and forth and whatever. And then suddenly you realize, oh, damn, we didn't even chat yet. <laughs> so here we go. I think it's the first time we talk ever that we are being connected with. But it's awesome to have you on the show. So Nathan, welcome to the show. And thank you for being here. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. My, my business partner, Connor, is actually a big fan of yours. He just bought your book and he was the one telling me that I have to reach out to you at the beginning of the year. So I'm happy that you were nice enough to accept my messages and have me on the show. <laughs> that I'm nice enough to accept the messages. Please hear that out, everyone. <laughs> well, no, I'm happy to have you. I think Connor is not yet on the book order list. Connor, you got to order that book for real. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm happy to send it out to you guys, though. If someone wonders, like, what, wait, Monique has a book? Yes, and we can talk about it later. Now it's Nathan's part. So, Nathan, tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do, why do you have a German surname? We mentioned that in the beginning. And how was it growing up with being half German? <laughs> <laughs> so my dad's German and he was, he's Jewish. So their family, my great, great grandfather was uh, fled the country during the war and yeah, and all that. So, I mean, growing up, my parents were both teachers. My dad was a physics teacher. My dad was a kindergarten teacher. And it was kind of funny. I, I grew up in a town called Eastlaw Meadow in Massachusetts and we weren't poor by any means, but we were middle-class, right? My parents were teachers. We had a little bit of money, not too much. But because my dad taught in the town next to me, I got to go to that school system, Longmeadow, which was a much better school system. And all the kids there, their parents were doctors, lawyers, dentists, big business owners. So all my friends had everything growing up, like the latest video games, nice cars, big houses. And I'm over here, like lower middle class. And my parents, super frugal. Like we didn't spend money on anything. I didn't have cable until I was, I don't know, 16, 17. So I think growing up, there was always a little bit of envy to my friends who had everything. And it was never more evident to when I had these summer jobs. My parents always made me work from when I was 15 on 40 hours a week, every summer, every winter vacation. And I learned a ton about sales, about marketing, about working with people and business 
But I also learned that I didn't want to have a boss, that I hated working nine to five, and that I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. So that was kind of how I got into it. And when I got to college, I kind of looked at it as a ticking clock. I had four years to start my own business, or I was going to go into the real world, get a job, and never look back. So I started hustling right away. I remember my school bookstore, I would buy textbooks for hundreds of dollars, try to sell it back to them, and they would offer me pennies on the dollar, and that pissed me off. So I started a competing textbook business where I would pay people more money than the bookstore, I would sell these books online, and I created a referral program. Before I knew it, I had lines out the door of people trying to sell me their books to the point where I actually got a cease and desist letter from my college telling me to knock it off because I was stealing too much of their business. So that was my first glimpse into being an entrepreneur. And I mentioned my parents were teachers. I didn't want to get kicked out of college. That would not have gone over well. So I pivoted and I started experimenting with Amazon. This was 2008, 2009. No one really knew what Amazon was. It was kind of this big bookstore just getting into other products. So through a lot of trial and error, I came across baby products and I got really good at selling baby products on Amazon. If you can imagine me as a 20-year-old single college guy selling millions of dollars of baby products on Amazon, that was me. And people thought I was crazy. People thought I was running a Ponzi scheme. No one knew what Amazon was. People didn't understand like why I was selling baby products. I was kind of that weird guy like listing baby products on his computer during class. And this business scaled. It blew up. I ended up selling over $25 million over six years, but I became overworked. I was stressed out. I was working 60 hours a week balancing school, my personal life. I was in a fraternity and, and all of that. And I had to start hiring people. And I remember hiring college kids and they quickly proved to be unreliable, right? They were smoking weed. They were drinking on the job. And so I pivoted and I got into the remote hiring world, the virtual assistants, and I hired on the Upworks, the Fivers, and I hired some good people, but I hated the process of posting a job, getting 50 people to apply, interviewing them one by one. And I kept looking for something faster. And finally I said, you know what, I'll build this myself. And that's when I had the idea of building my own marketplace to compete with them called FreeUp. And the whole concept of free up was we pre-vetted freelancers, matched people up quickly on the back end, great support, and no turnover protection. If someone quit, we would cover replacement costs. Well, we took this to market as a minimum viable product. We spent $5,000 on this really crummy software, and people really liked the service. They hated our software at first, and we eventually invested into it, but they liked our freelancers, they liked our support. And we ended up scaling that for four years before being acquired at the end of last year, which is a whole nother story. And once we got acquired, people started reaching out and saying, hey, can you teach me how you did it? Because this entire business was run with VAs. We had no office, no US employees. It was 35 remote VAs in the Philippines. And we had good systems on interviewing, onboarding, training, and managing, and how to hire VAs to get on podcasts, to do lead generation, do bookkeeping. So that's when we started our new venture, Outsource School, a membership site teaching people how to build, how to implement these systems and processes in their business. So that's the short, long story of how I went from a broke college kid selling books to baby products to free up to, to now Outsource School. I love it. Baby products. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just an amazing story. So let's dive in a little bit deeper. So you're just kid, middle class, um, with German-American parents. And 
Walk me through school because um, I'm really interested to be very honest in educational systems because I think usually they suck. And I'm just, you know, honest and it's my opinion. So uh, everyone has one. And so I want to know kind of what was school like for you because I just actually recently um, found out how crazy it can be in American schools for the kids to be bullied by the teachers. And I was like, wow, this is, I mean, wow. Like this is next level, uh, this is next level psychopath. <laughs> so, and now you have teachers as a parent. So talk to me a little bit about this because I'm really interested in that. And I, I think you have a good perspective on both ends. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the, the clash growing up. And I have a great relationship with my parents. Like I, I talk to them all the time now. Um, but I think growing up, it, it wasn't necessarily that way because they were all about the education system, right? Like that was their job. That was their profession. They took a lot of pride in that. And from the flip side, I was more of a rebel. Like I didn't want to be told what to do by teachers. I didn't want to learn things that I didn't care about, like biology and, and science. And my dad's a physics teacher. So there was a lot of clashing there. And I was always the kind of student that if I cared about it, like math and economics and business, like I would get really good grades. I would, I could study, I'd work hard. I wasn't the smartest kid in the class, but I could work hard and get good grades. And I almost kind of split it up between like kindergarten to high school versus college. Cause for me, that was a much different experience from kindergarten to high school. I was forced to take a lot of classes like cello and, and like, um, yeah, physics and stuff like that, that I didn't really care about. And because of that, I was a pretty big rebel. Now, I never got bullied by my teachers. Like you mentioned, I was kind of the one that just didn't put up with it. And I would talk back to teachers and get in a little bit of trouble and, and stuff like that because I didn't like spending my time on stuff that I knew that I wasn't going to apply later. Now, fast forward to college and college I paid for myself. So right there, I'm making more of an investment. I wanted to make the most of my investment. And I also got to pick the classes that I took, which was all around business and and systems and, and computers. And even though I have a college degree hanging up here that I never used, college <laughs> college was a really fun time. I mean, I met some of my best friends. I started my, my business there. I met my business partner, Connor, in college. So it's tough to weigh that, right? It's like, did I get an ROI on the degrees? Probably not. But if I didn't go to college, then I wouldn't have met my business partner and, and who knows where I'd be right now. So I think my parents growing up always had the mentality that I would go to school, get good grades, get into a college, graduate, get a real job, work for 30 years, retire. And that was always the way that I was pushed. Even when I got to college and I was running this business and I paid off my student loans and I quit my internship, my parents were like, oh, like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, they're going to offer you a good job after college. You're going to get health insurance. So they're much more conservative in the sense they want the safety. They want that, that security blanket. And for me, my counter argument to that, and if we've learned anything from, from the COVID-19 situation, is people that think their jobs are secure because they have a nine to five, a lot of times their jobs are not as secure as they think they are. So I, I think all in all, they, they were very supportive, but I definitely spent years of my life clashing with my parents over them thinking the, the real or the US education system was good and I should kind of get in line with what they're doing versus me thinking, I don't need this. I'm going to go focus on growing a business and doing what I want to do. Mm, I love that. I want to dive a little bit into the mindset because I think it's really interesting to see where this comes from and how you develop that. So I, I mean, 
I'm really studying a lot of human behavior and neuroscience and, and mindset and all of these type of things. So I always wonder where people's attitudes or mindsets and perspectives are coming from. So you have these teacher parents and you're saying like, hell no, that's not my thing to do. But did you see that somewhere where you were small or did maybe your grandpa said like, son, I would never do that in this educational system. I don't know, you know. <laughs> what do you think was it that that clicked in you that said like I don't like I don't think that's my way? Was it like seeing your parents and not wanting to be like them besides them being awesome, but sometimes we have that. Like I I love my parents, but I don't want to be in like a, my mom is a kindergarten teacher hell no, that's not my way to go. You know what I mean? So sometimes we have this feeling already and we're like, oh, we need to find really fast another way out. So what do you think was it for you? Yeah. And my aunt was an entrepreneur growing up and I got to see her start her own business. I got to see her upgrade to like nicer houses as her business grew. So I got to kind of talk to her and learn from her. And I was also fortunate enough to get these internships. I worked at the Aaron's Corporation, which is kind of like a rent-a-center. And I worked at Firestone and I got to work under some CEOs who showed me that they could work from the golf course and work on their cell phone and have pure flexibility. So I kind of got a glimpse into what being an entrepreneur was really like. And in my mind, it kind of proved what I kind of already thought that a lot of what my parents were trying to force me into was, was BS. Now, at the same time, there were lessons that my parents taught me that at the time I didn't appreciate. And now I'm very thankful I had. For example, my parents were very frugal. They taught me how to avoid credit card debt. They taught me how to save and invest in stocks. And at the time when I'm seeing my friends get the latest video game and buy everything that possibly comes up. I'm like, oh, why can't we have cable? Why can't I have a PlayStation? Stuff like that. But now my parents are retired. They're traveling the world. They, they did a good job saving up so they could retire. And a lot of those same fundamentals I apply to my life and my business today where I, I wear very, very much the same clothes every day. I don't spend money on cars and clothes and stuff that I don't care about. And I save, I invest, I I run lean businesses where I'm not wasting money on stuff and I'm reinvesting. So there's definitely life lessons that, that I learned from my parents that, that I'm super grateful for. But I think the overall disagreement of the education system, I think that we continue to disagree on to this day. Yeah. What do you think should be different in the educational systems? I think more life skills. Like, I, I mean, I was fortunate enough that my dad taught me to stay out of debt and pay credit cards and, and stuff like that, but they don't teach that in school. I mean, how many people leave high school not knowing how to balance a checkbook or not knowing basic financing or what the real world is really like and paying bills or how to invest and, and save for retirement or how to start a business? I mean, those are skills that you don't learn in school. And a lot of times you're, you're learning stuff like how to play the saxophone that how many people really grow up to be professional saxophone players. So to me, it's kind of reallocating the, the extra subjects towards actual life skills that apply to everyone, no matter what industry you're in, whether you want to be a physics teacher, an astronaut, a business owner, whatever, you still have to get those life skills. And I feel like that is where the education really fails a lot of people. Yeah. So which of those life skills do you think are the most important one when it comes to outsourcing? Uh, life skills and when it comes to outsourcing. 
Good question. I, I think focusing your time and having like a, a priority is incredibly important. I think no matter what you're doing in life, you have to have time management skills. You have to have the ability to prioritize. And for me, it's all about figuring out when I'm the most productive. And I've kind of learned that from seven Seven to nine a.m. I'm the most productive, like working on whatever my biggest project of the day is. Those are my two most productive hours, and I even hire a VA to get me caught up every morning, clear my inbox before I wake up, so I get kind of a head start to every day. I personally like doing a podcast every day in in the mid afternoon after I've already done my most important thing of the day. I do phone calls later on in the day. I don't like doing podcasts later because I'm tired and I've already worked a long day. So I think understanding how you can be most productive and how understanding what skills you have versus what you should be doing and what you should outsource to someone else to do, those are all skills that you can apply no matter what industry you are. Even if you're not outsourcing and you're working in a corporate job and you're building a team or you want a leadership role, you have to be able to figure out, hey, what am I really good at? What should I be spending my time on? What is most beneficial to my company or the company that I work for? And how can I delegate the tasks that I'm not good at to people that can take ownership of it and run with it? And I think that's the, when you break it down outsourcing, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, absolutely. So when you started outsourcing, right, what was it that you were looking for in the beginning? At the beginning, I just needed help. I mean, I was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. College kids were driving me crazy. I remember having to knock on their dorm room to get them to wake up, to just show up to work. And I just needed some reliable help. And when I hired my, my first VA, uh, Chick Yan out of the Philippines, I didn't even know where the Philippines was on the map. I didn't know anything about their culture. I didn't know what it was like, like working with someone from another country. So I mean, she was fantastic, but I had to ask her a lot of questions. I was like, hey, what should I know about working with people from the Philippines? What should I know about just being a, a, running a remote business and running remote meetings? Like, tell me about your favorite clients. What makes them your favorite clients? Tell me about bad clients you've had. What, what makes them a bad client? And I really learned from scratch. And it took me years and years to kind of build out my interview process, my onboarding process, my training process through a lot of a trial and error. So I think like anything else, you kind of get into something, maybe you have a little bit of success and maybe you think it's easy. I mean, I hired Cheeks and she was a great VA. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is easy. You post a job, someone shows up, you, your life becomes easier. But then I proceeded to make bad hires after that. I had people quit on me. I had people that weren't motivated. So you start to realize like, hey, I might have gotten lucky once, but if I want to actually grow businesses, I need real systems and real processes to get me there. Yes. Systems and processes. So, <laughs> love them. What do you think? So, do you only hire in the Philippines or do you hire actually worldwide? So I like to divide up hiring into three levels. You got followers, you got doers, and you got experts. So followers are, they have years of experience, but they're there to follow your systems, your processes. And though that's where I hire from the Philippines primarily. Now, the doers are like the graphic designers, the video editors, the writers, and the experts are bringing their own strategy to the table. The high-level coaches, consultants, agencies could be freelancers. And, and so for the doers and the experts, I hire from the US, I hire from India, I hire from all over. For the followers, and that's what I consider virtual assistants, I usually hire from the Philippines. Mm -hmm. What do you think makes them the best followers? 
So first of all, they learn English at a very young age. And for someone like me that only speaks English, that's incredibly important. They also consume a lot of the same media, a lot of the same products and, and services as we do in the US. So if you're running a US business or even a UK business or whatever it is, there's a lot of benefits there that you kind of get to skip the, the easy trainings that they already understand your products, your services. They have a really great sense of family, which is good if you get good uh, with creating a good culture and a good team because they live with a big family. They have a church, which is a family. They have outside communities that are family. And if you build a family within your team, they're not going to want to leave that, assuming that you treat them well and they like each other. And we have some strategies behind that as well. And that's important because there's always going to be someone else who can offer more money to your virtual assistants. But if they like your family and they like your team, they're more likely to stay. I've also found them to be very trustworthy and honest. I built great relationships with people in the Philippines. There's obviously a price factor there where, hey, if I hired someone for 15 bucks an hour in the US for a follower role, that's all fine and dandy, but how long are they really going to be happy at 15 bucks an hour? Eventually, I'm going to have to increase it to 18 to 20 to 25, whatever. And then I have a tough decision to make. Do I drastically overpay for this follower role or do I start over and train someone from scratch where if I hire someone from the Philippines for five bucks an hour and they're a rock star, I can move them up to seven or 10 or 12, right? Some team leaders that were making 20 bucks an hour and they're going to be with me for life. They're not going anywhere. So I'm a big proponent of treating them well. I was telling you before we took $500,000 and gave it to our team in the Philippines when, when we sold free up. But at the same time, it gives you a more potential to hold on to people long term, which is really important when you're running a business because turnover just destroys small businesses. Yeah. So would you consider to also like, let's just say you build another free up. Let's just say it, right? And you're saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to actually expand this model into different countries. So I love actually people as well from Africa. There are different countries in Africa. They speak English as a second language, but it's actually their primary language in their day-to-day -day life. Venezuela is because of their economic environment, basically. They've gotten really good in the past like five years to get into this online world. Internet access might be a little bit of a thing sometimes here and there, but their skills are great. So how would you get started to expand in countries like these to find people to vet them you know like what would the process be like in a few steps for you to see like if that would be a good let's just say for the following role follower role right whether or not you would do it just hypothetically yeah and free up allows people from all over i mean they get applicants sure. they get about 2000 applicants a week from all over the world and they don't really care where people are from it's all about that skill the attitude and the communication so for me, I, like you can't put everyone in, in a bunch, right? Like there's plenty of VAs in the Philippines that are great. There are plenty of them that, that are not so great. Same yeah. thing with South Africa, same thing hiring from Germany. Like just because you meet one that does a great job or a bad job doesn't mean everyone in their country is good or bad. So for, for me, it, it comes down to skill, attitude, and communication. For skill, we don't care if they're a 10 out of 10 or a 5 out of 10 or a 3 out of 10. There's a time and a place for whatever number that is. But what we do care about is that they're honest about what they can and cannot do. That's the most important thing and that they're priced accordingly. For attitude, we look for people that have a positive attitude, that are the bigger man, the bigger woman. We've all had clients that aren't rainbows and butterflies and you don't want a VA blowing up on your client or, or being acting in an unprofessional way representing you. 
And you want someone that wants to build relationships and work for your team. And you want someone that's not just motivated by money and that actually enjoys what they're doing. If they're a graphic designer, they, they love doing graphic design. So, and then communication, which we touched upon in terms of speaking English, but communication goes beyond that. It's the ability to be direct and get on the same page quickly and run an efficient meeting and be able to ask questions when question comes up instead of assuming stuff. So for me, the biggest mistake that people make vetting, no matter where they're hiring from, is they're only focused on the experience. They're only focused on the skill. This person has five years of WordPress experience. They've been a VA for 10 years, but they're not focused on the attitude and the communication. And it's really that full trifecta that we looked at for in free up when we were vetting people. And if I started another marketplace or another agency, I would look for that same trifecta. Yeah. I do the same as my clients. Um, when we go through hiring, I actually say that skill is the last thing you want to look at because if they have the right attitude, they would want to learn whatever you want to. Obviously, there's, as you say, you know, there's a time and a place and some people are more skilled in learning, for example, tech, than they would learn languages or, for example, anything like this, right? But if you wet them correctly, you can see where the learning potential can go and how open they are to learn that things. So skill is also, for me, like one of the last things to look at because if they don't even have the attitude to learn and to want to invest in new skills, for example then it's really hard to keep working in a long-term relationship. So, you know, looking at all, like, I mean, I know a lot of outsourcing companies, VA, you know, agencies, whatever. What would you say is the things that would piss you off the most about this industry? So I, I think there's two things. One is not treating the VAs well. I always tell clients that you want to figure out a way to be your VA's favorite client and understand what the VA actually cares about, what makes them happy from a money side, but also what are their goals? Are they just looking for stability? Are they looking to learn more? Are they looking for more leadership, more responsibility? So I think some people go in with the mentality, and you and I were chatting before this, of, I want to pay this person as little as possible, keep my margins high as possible. And this VA should just be happy that they have a job and, and I'm going to grow my business. And that's not really the mentality that, that we take. I mean, we're big proponents of giving raises, giving bonuses, talking with the VA, making sure they're happy with the rate before they start the job, putting systems in place where they get rewarded, especially if you have a lot of success. Like we sold our company. We wanted our team that helped us scale the company that we couldn't have grown it without them. We wanted them to be rewarded. So I think that's one part of it. I think the second part of it, and I get asked a lot like, oh, I want to build an agency or I want to turn my freelancing into more of a, a business with a team. For me, it's like you have to figure out what that value add is. If you're just taking someone's work, giving it to someone else, having them do the work and giving it to your client with no value add, that's not a sustainable business. You're not doing anything there. So your value add needs to be the strategy. It needs to be the management. It needs to be the, the time and making it more efficient for your client. Or maybe you built the systems, you built the process. So anyone listening that is thinking about starting an agency or running an agency, you have to figure out what is your value add. Are you just outsourcing the work and, and being a middleman and making the percentage? Or are you actually adding something to the table in between? And that's what the really good agencies do. And that's what makes them scalable. They know what their value add is. They have systems and processes to make that business scalable. And it's a benefit for the VAs. It's a benefit for them. And it's a benefit for the client. Yeah. I would love to hear your take on, on the pricing sides of things because let's dive a little bit into there because sometimes I think it's a really 
it's a really hard thing to wrap on sometimes. So let's talk about the Philippines because you're really experienced in that, right? So I know that when people get started hiring VAs and they may hire them by themselves, not going through a VA agency or whatever it is, they may research on Google, you know, minimum wage Philippines. And then they say like, oh, if I just pay them a dollar more, I'm a great person because I pay them a dollar more than the minimum wage per hour, you know, and then I'm great. And I think like, hmm, that's not really how it works. And I also feel like, and here's just my personal take on, I personally believe that although they are in a economical, how am I going to say that politically correct, less developed area. Can I say it that way? Well, now I did. So where basically the the environment where they live, they obviously pay less rent, but then also they get less salary and all of these things. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to pay them less for the same work that they do, right? So I'm a huge fan of, as you just said, like um, not only bonus systems, but also raising them up to a point where they could even earn the same type of money, like let's say a European VA or an American VA, because if they get to the point of doing the same quality work, I have no problem to pay the same amount of uh, money. So I would like to hear your take on and maybe give advice to um, entrepreneurs in America and Europe and how to deal with these type of things when starting outsourcing. Yeah. So first of all, the minimum wage in the Philippines is $12 a day. So not $12 an hour, $12 a day. So it's not that tough to beat that. But at the same time, I truly believe in paying VAs in that $5 to $10 an hour range. That's usually what a good price to at least start off is. That's a lot more than what they'll make in, in a local job. And it also allows potential for you to keep them on long term and not be drastically overpaying. Now, what I like to do is when I'm hiring VAs, especially early on in my company, and I did this at FreeUp, but now I'm also doing it at Outsource School. I hired a VA. She proved herself. She showed me that she could take ownership and leadership. And those people early on, I want to keep them around. Turnover of those positions is really tough on a startup. So I like to put systems in place where their pay goes up as the business grows. With free up, our measurement tool was build hours. So we would build clients every Thursday and we could say, hey, we build 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 build hours this week. So I hired a VA to start called Martin named Marius and we started him at five bucks an hour. And we said, hey, every time build hours per week goes up by 500, your pay is going to go up by 50 cents an hour. And by the time we sold free up four years later, he was making over 20 bucks an hour and it was a win, win, win for everyone. So you can't necessarily do that with everyone in your team. I mean, I had a 35-person VA team. So if I did that with everyone, that depending on how, what your business is, that, that might not make sense. But with the core people in your team, especially the ones that you start with, that putting those systems in place is great. And like you said, to be honest, he was worth every penny. Like By the time he was making $23, $24, $25 an hour, he had four years of experience working with me in my company hours and hours, years of training put into him, for me to lose him would be devastating. Mm -hmm. By paying him that much, he's not even considering getting another job. He's giving his A effort every single day, helping me grow the business. I don't want to replace that. So again, creating that win-win-win for everyone, 
another question that I like to ask VAs is what are you making with your other clients? So I hired Anna for my new company, Outsource School, and she told me she was making like seven bucks an hour with her other clients. I had started her at five. Once she proved to be a rock star, I essentially said, hey, I want you to work with me. I'm going to give you nine and I want to be your only client. So put, again, putting them in good position where they're, you're their favorite client from both the money standpoint, but also the culture and the relationship standpoint as well. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think totally agree on letting them also prove to yourself, because I think it's really important if you start high out, it's really risk. It's like in every position, you know, if I would apply in Germany, they would always have a trial um, salary for the first like six months. And then after that, it's negotiation time. So it's like the same thing in corporate Germany for us. There was no way you can start out high, obviously, in terms of like how much experience you had, like after the first like six years, I obviously had so much experience, I was able to start in higher, but then the negotiation, I had so much room, you know, after I proved myself. So it's the same thing. And I totally agree to do that. So let's get a little bit into the perks as entrepreneurs that we could offer to our team, whether they're employees or VA teams, for example. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are a little bit afraid to hire because they don't understand that the A's that are not on a payroll, um, I think that's how you use the term, right? If they're fixed employees, they're on the payroll. And if, the US, they're, yeah. if they're VAs, they're basically like freelancers, they're contractors, right? Right. So, so just to get the, the terms clear, because we use a little bit different terms. <laughs> but yeah, so let's just make it clear. So you can have a team that's as you just said, you paid Anna more to be your only client. So then that is a totally like possibility for entrepreneurs to have a team out of, for example, VAs or freelancers or like a team of contractors, but they don't have to be fixed employees. But what I love to do is, as you said a few minutes back, to, to see what they really love, how they feel valued and how they feel, you know, encouraged. Because for some people, it might be a title in the company, you know, they want to have the highest title. Some people go for, for example, I know in the Philippines, um, when I talk to my team, they don't have the best health insurance there. So health insurance could be a great perk to offer them when they work their way up to say, after this goal we achieved together, you get health insurance on top. Or some are just like, you know, I want a free handbag. I don't know, you know, like it's just everyone runs by something different. So what do you think are great perks to offer to a team that's not on a payroll? Yeah, so I actually don't provide health insurance to the VAs in the Philippines. What I do do is I make sure that they can afford health insurance by the money that that I'm providing them. So I make sure that they're factoring that in. If they're fact, if they want five bucks an hour, ten bucks an hour, whatever it is, they know they're going to have to pay for their own health insurance stuff like that. They also get the flexibility to work remote, which is pretty big in the Philippines, especially mm -hmm. when the traffic is crazy there. And I also like to make sure a schedule actually works for them. For example, my VA Anna works forty hours a week, but instead of making her work nine to five Eastern time, which would be crazy. She works throughout the night. She works seven to 12. And then the rest of her hours are flexible time. And that flexible time is a big perk to her. Again, understanding upfront what VAs care about because all VAs care about different things. I'm also pretty flexible when it comes to 
days off. I mean, within reason, as long as you communicate it, if you need to take a break or you need a day off here and there, that's totally fine. I don't say, oh, you only get two weeks of vacation a year or whatever. Like if you need a day off and you give us proper notice, that's chill, no big deal. Off of that, I mean, we've thrown Christmas parties where we'll pay for the food, we'll pay for everything, and they'll get together. Um, we've sent them T-shirts. I know when the Hoth, the company that bought my company, uh, free up, the first thing they did when they bought the company is they set every, they sent every VA a gift basket of like Hoth swag, so like hot sauce, cups, T-shirts, like cool, cool stuff like that. So there, there's different ways there. Bonuses and raises are, are always appreciated. I like to give a bonus out at the six month mark and at the end of the year mark, and use the bonus as a way to give feedback, to show appreciation, to challenge them, to update them on, on what the company is doing and small gestures like that. I mean, from a personal side, I also like to build a relationship with the VAs I'm working with. I connect with them on social media. I learn about them and their family. I'm the godfather of one of my VA's kids. Like you don't have to go that far, but building that relationship is incredibly important and getting letting them get to know you on a personal level is only going to benefit it going forward as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just found out there is like a nomad insurance uh, company that offers now also remote insurance for remote teams. So I thought, and actually it wasn't that expensive, well, how it is with insurance, but I thought it was a really right. cool perk because um, it is something that I consider to offer when my team grows more, to offer for people who would decide, okay, do you want health insurance or do you want a pay raise, you know? I mean... Right. So, and I think it's just, it's just nice to have these possibilities now, because obviously in this world, uh, especially under these circumstances now, a lot of people may be also a little bit afraid of how things are going to move forward. So it's just nice to be able to give a little bit of different perks out. But I love the swag. Swag is always great as well. <laughs> right, exactly. So what would you say is, um, because we spoke about uh, building relationships, and I love that a lot of people don't look far enough into um, building team culture, especially with remote teams. Um, what would you say is your favorite thing to do uh, when you build team culture? So for me, and it's funny, I asked my uh, my great VA Chickian as I'm building my, my first course for outsource school, and I was doing the thing on building. A, I was doing a module on building a relationship with your VA. I was like, hey, what should I remember to include here? And I me- remember I mentioned that family is a big part of VAs in the Philippines, and she said family is the key. You you should get to know your VA's family, understand like their kids, like what their kids are into, like learning about them. That if you do that, the VA is going to to love you forever. So w- one quick example, what we do, we have a Monday morning morning meeting at 10 a.m. every week with all of our virtual assistants. First five minutes of every meeting, people show pictures from their weekend. And a lot of times it's pictures of them with their family, with their kids. I mean, now we're in lockdown, so everyone's kind of like together. But And people use that. They can interact. They can laugh. Some people have some funny pictures and stuff like that. And just stuff like that is a great way to build camaraderie, to build that team culture. Um, and, and again, not just talking business 100% of the time. I asked my VA, how was their weekend? What did they do? It was her daughter's birthday last week. So I made sure that her daughter got a happy birthday. Like Stuff like that is incredibly important. Yeah, I love that. I do the same. I actually sent my team to the beach. And last time we celebrated the daughter because she got some super cute awards in school. So we got on the phone and in our team meeting, she just jumped in and I was like, come here. I want to celebrate with you. (laughs) They're so cute. Yeah, definitely. And I don't mind actually 
being interrupted in a team meeting. And also that's something because people always think like super efficient, Monique, and you know, all this like second revenue to efficiency and time management, whatever. But if as soon they're going to read my book, they'd be like, oh, this is how she does it. Oh, really? Wow. I think they just, they're going to be blown with their mind if they actually got to read it. How much I just actually prefer life and the, all these moments that, that really just light you up. And that's why I can be so efficient because when I get to work, I just have so much joy that I get through it really fast, you know? So I think now I spilled my secret. Anyways, <laughs> so we're about to wrap it up slowly. I have three more questions for you. So one is, when you start working with entrepreneurs, outsourcing or whatever, what question would you wish they would ask you more? So I get asked a lot of questions about virtual assistants. Usually I like to focus on system and process questions. So people asking me like, what is the most important thing that I should be doing when I'm hiring a first virtual assistant? And my answer to that is most people know you have to interview a virtual assistant and we teach people our interview process. Most people know that you should train a VA and we teach people how to do SOPs and value your time. And most people know you need to manage a VA. We talked about meetings and bonuses and raises and all of that. But the onboarding is where people always mess up. They always skip this step. And from here, a lot of people, they'll interview, let's say, three virtual assistants. They like Jane. They want to hire Jane at five bucks an hour. They say, Jane, that was a great interview. You're hired at five bucks an hour. And they jump into training. And what I teach people to do is, Jane, that was a great interview. I want to hire you at five bucks an hour. First, let's make sure you're actually good with five bucks an hour. If you are, let's talk about bonuses and raises. Let's make sure you understand what's realistic. So if they're making five bucks an hour now, but they expect to make 10 in the next six months, and I'm only giving a 50 cent raise every six months, hopefully they don't accept the job because they won't be happy with it. And then I take them through what I call my SICK method, S-I-C-C, which is schedule, issues, communication, and culture. And I go through the schedule with me. What schedule does she have with her other clients? Is there any overlap? How many total hours is she working? Maybe she's already working 100 hours. And if I add more hours, she's working 120. So I make sure we're on the same page there. For issues, I go over personal issues, weather, internet, power, computer, make sure I understand how often she has those issues, how she communicates when she has those, what is the backup plan for those issues, and I make sure she knows that I don't work with virtual assistants that are one issue away from not being able to work for an extended period of time. For communication, I go over the channels I use, Slack, email, uh, Viber, how I use each channel. Do I use Time Doctor? Do I not use Time Doctor? Because I've seen people that they train a VA, they interview them and get going. And then once the VA is done training, they're like, oh, by the way, I want you to use this, re this screen recording software. And the VA is like, what? I never agreed to that. I wouldn't have accepted the job. And then both of them are in bad spots. So you get on the same page. And then culture, we kind of already talked about whatever the culture is in your business. We're all about ideas and feedback and being part of a team. And, and so we go through all this. It's a 20 to 40 minute conversation. It's not a five hour conversation. And we give them a chance to ask questions. And then we give them a chance to back out because I'd much rather that they back out if it's not a right, if it's not the right fit, if they're not in line with our expectations, whatever it is, then for me to find out it's a bad fit in two months. So if you take anything regarding VA strategy away from this podcast, it's make sure you have an onboarding process in between the interview and the training. It's the best 20 to 30 minute investment that you can make to really protect yourself down the line. A 
Man. And this is not only for VAs, you guys. This is for every person that you hire. Like was one of my last clients. I did the same thing and I say, do not miss out on your onboarding process. And they were like, well, I just going to introduce them and get started. I'm like, hell no, that's not, that's <laughs> not the process. And I just wrote it out for them. And I was like, please follow these steps. If you do me one favor, just follow the steps. If you don't want me to help you with it, fine, but follow these steps. And so it worked out well in the, in the end, but it's, oh my God, I can't even, I can't even scream loud enough, but it's so important. Like how the heck, do people forget that it's, 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 if you, you know, you're hired, you're going to work, but you forgot to put your clothes on or something like this. It's the same thing. You just be there unprepared, you know, like, I mean, okay. I am. Yes. All right. Last two questions. I'm going to otherwise just bow to the aim and like all the time here <laughs> <laughs> onboarding. Did you get that onboarding onboarding? All right. So last two questions. Um, I asked those two questions, all of my podcast guests, and they make me really excited. So first is, what does efficiency mean to you? To me, it's all about making sure you're spending your time on the right things and you're able to kind of move quickly as an entrepreneur. We, we, leave, we live in a pretty crazy time where things change and you can kind of get stuck if you spend too much time planning and not enough time implementing. And you can also get stuck if you're spending your hours doing the wrong thing. So for me, it's all about figuring out what hours in the day I'm most productive doing things and, and what I can get done to move the needle. And I'm not the type of person that spends eight hours a day filming course videos or eight hours a day doing lead generation or eight hours a day writing SOPs. What I do is small consistent steps every single day to continue to move that needle. I network with three new entrepreneurs every day. I film one video every day. I make sure I delegate a task and I train with my VA every day. So all these things are small, but over time you look back two years later and you're like, wow, I really grew my network. Wow. I built a lot of courses. Wow. Whatever it is. And that's really what, what it comes down to uh, as an entrepreneur. And when it comes to valuing your time, I have a 90 day rule where I don't do anything longer than 90 days for that first month. I'm throwing stuff against the wall. I'm seeing what works, what doesn't work. Uh, that second month, I'm creating an SOP. I have a good idea what doesn't work. I'm fine tuning what's working. I start interviewing someone. Maybe I hire someone by the end of the month. That third month, I'm really finalizing my SOPs. I'm onboarding them. I'm training them with the goal of getting that task off my plate by the end of that 90 days. So instead of just adding, adding, adding to your plate, which a lot of entrepreneurs do, you're adding something, turning into a system, turning into a process, delegating it, adding something else. And when you get into that mentality as an entrepreneur, it's incredibly powerful. Well, did we say that loud enough for the ones in the back? I hope so. <laughs> I love that. Yes, all the yeses. Last question before we wrap this all up. If you would have to push the reset button, which you just kind of done, but you keep all of the knowledge, which of the three things would you keep doing over and over again to get back to success? Yeah. So I have a, an organic marketing playbook that worked really well with FreeUp. We're doing it now at Outsource School. We teach it to our members at Outsource School. And the three parts of it that I would keep doing are networking. I network with three new entrepreneurs every day. I, I think having a big network is key. It leads to a lot of opportunities. I go on podcasts. Going on podcasts is great for networking. It's great for backlinks and SEO. It's great for getting in front of your target audience, no matter what business you are. 
and partnerships. People are always focused on getting that one great lead. What I like to do is focus on building partnerships, finding other people in my space that don't have a competing product and setting up consistent content partnerships with them where every quarter, every six months, and all this is organized by a virtual assistant, by the way, we reach out to them and we say, hey, what do you want to do together? They'll send an email blast about me. I'll do vice versa. They'll guest post for me, vice versa. Could be a YouTube video, a podcast. I've done co-sponsored VIP parties at conferences. That's kind of the high level of it. But getting those partnerships in place is key. And instead of just constantly going after lead, 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 you get hundreds of partners that every quarter are constantly promoting you to their audience. That's how you grow a business. That's how you grow a brand. That's how you get to work with all the big players in your space. So I think those three things can be applied no matter what industry you're in. Yeah, absolutely. Before I let you off the hook, I want to say thank you for coming on, taking all the time, sharing all the insights and all of the educational mishaps in our system. So thank you for being here, Nathan. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And please tell everyone where they can find you or Outsource School and what they can find there. Yeah. So first of all, I'm one of the easiest entrepreneurs to contact. I love networking with other entrepreneurs. So feel free to reach out to me on Facebook or LinkedIn, Nathan Hirsch, or Instagram or Twitter, Real Nate Hirsch. Uh, Outsource School is a really cool platform. We have our membership where you get Cracking the VA Code, which teaches you the fundamentals of interviewing, onboarding, training, and managing with real systems, real cheat sheets you can apply to your business right away. And with that, you get a year membership to Outsource School. You get every other course around operations and marketing that we come out with for the next year, stuff like how to use VAs to get on podcasts, how to hire a VA bookkeeper, stuff like that. You get a year of support, you get access to our community, and we're also building some really cool VA software that you're going to get access to as well. We also have some free tools right on the site. We have a VA budget calculator if you want to see how many VAs you can afford right now. We have a case study that shows you in the four years we scaled free up the exact hires we made each year so you can see how we structured it. And we have a free productivity course that takes an hour to take and it will make you more productive going forward. And I know people listening to this are all about being more efficient and it gives you some really cool tools and hacks to make you faster and more efficient going forward. So uh, feel free to check that out and thanks again for having me on. Amazing. And you know where to find everything. It's down below somewhere in those show notes that you love checking out. So don't miss out on these links and subscribe to the podcast because we have amazing guests like Nathan every single week. You've been listening to Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. We hope you've learned that you too can unlock your ultimate potential, how to control your time, create some clarity in your crazy life, and how to live life limitless. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please follow on Instagram at the Monique Lindner. We'll see you next time on Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Remember to slow down to speed up.